This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alexandra Otolia-Baird, and today I'll be talking to Sandra Young about her book, The Early Modern Global South in Print, Textual Form and the Production of Human Difference as Knowledge, published by Routledge in 2015. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alexandra. It's it's a delight to be here and an honour. Well, we're absolutely delighted to have you here. And before we really dive into this incredibly rich book, um, could we ask you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and and how the book really came to be? Sure. It it um, emerged. I mean, I, I worked on it for many many years. I think probably ten because it it began its early life as my PhD thesis um, when I was a a graduate student at Rutgers University in in the States. But but fortunately, because the South African system, once I was employed here at the University of Cape Town, we don't have as fierce a tenure system as exists in in the States. I I was given some leeway to to allow the book to evolve and it, it became something quite different in fact from its early incarnation as as a as a dissertation which I'm grateful for because it, it was almost only in the last year or so of its life that I finally understood what it needed to be doing and saying and what the most compelling aspect of the argument was, was, I mean, I was very interested in intellectual history and in the, you know, that 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 particular moment in the 16th century in which there was this sort of explosion of knowledge, and not just as a matter of content, but as a matter of of form as well. You know, the, the basis for understanding what the world looked like and how Europeans were to process this. Um, not just the, the the new information about the so-called discovery of a new continent, but also what that meant for their own self-understanding and for kind of global relations of power. And and, and I knew that it was always th- that that was my concern. But what I, f- as I did more and more of the very careful textual work, I realised that that part of what these these documents were doing, the, whether it was the maps or the Woodcut images, or you know, the natural histories and in the and the, the geographies and this, these kind of emergent disciplines. Part of what they were doing was really establishing a kind of a global hierarchy um, along the axis of south and north, and and that the many of these texts were using the language of geography, the the, the language of the cartographic map, to create a distinction that was. It clearly racialized, and so so the idea of the, the emergence of of a of a global south, um, of a racialized south, in order to sort of um, 
orient Europe in relation to the, these kind of supposedly newly discovered areas of the world. Of course, many of them had been known for for millennia. Um, it, it this language of the of the South was actually a, one mechanism, one key um, aspect of the lexicon, and that it it had tremendous relevance for the discipline's difficulty with anachronism in talking about race. And 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 I realized that that actually what I was working with, what I the, the, these these materials that I was writing about and the systems of knowledge as they manifest in these technologies of knowing, these kind of um in, in textual form, was was really about race. Although the discipline of early modern studies um, has has struggled with how best to use what what kind of lexicon to use to talk about what we would identify today as racism, um, and and I and I realized that I had something to offer that debate, but that only really crystallized in the last year or two of the of the research, um, and. And in fact, since then, I've realized that I could even have made more of that. So, so the, the book's argument um, really came into its own once I had done all that careful uh, textual research. Um, and since then, I've realized that, that there's so much more to say about how the language of racial difference um, both emerged in the period and and also can be named and identified and critiqued in the discipline today. So since then, I have been able to work on and recently published a book on in my you know with my it's it's not a different hat actually. I mean, I, I, as a Shakespearean scholar, it's 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 all of a piece in a sense, but um, the new book was able to to explore Shakespeare in the Global South today, contemporary adaptations and the, the ways in which they are able to give some kind of articulation or to make visible the struggles of that, that came with colonization, but for a new moment, in, in a sense. So, so I also work as a as a Shakespeare scholar, and um, part of my interest is in the way that theatre makers and filmmakers, cultural workers, innovate with Shakespeare in parts of the world that Shakespeare himself would not really have given attention to or um, even been in conversation with. So, so I think of it as a as a conversation between contemporary creatives and um, the work that we have come to know as as Shakespeare's um, drama, um, I also do some. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the in the the cultural politics in a way, the the politics of of creative work and. There's a there's a sort of a third area of scholarship that I work on too, which is um, which is about nonfiction and testimony and the, the kinds of 
artistic and curatorial work of museums um, and also personal narratives, the ways in which they engage the past for the present, in a sense, the way that that writers and artists um, have tried to deal with difficult histories in contexts like South Africa, um, but also in other parts of the world, Australia and in Europe um, and so on, in these contexts, these uh, that in the aftermath of political struggle and injustice. So that's part of the work that I do, and much of my teaching is based in that too. Um, but I'm I'm also very definitely an early modernist and a Shakespearean in my academic identity. Um, and I live in Cape Town, and I, I teach at um, the University of Cape Town. I've just had a stint as chair of the department, um, and now that, that my tenure there in that role, at any rate, is is over. I've handed over to a colleague. I feel excited about um, having more space to do research again and to be sort of back in the classroom, so to speak, the virtual classroom um, of today. And it, although these are all very different um, kind of areas of study, you do see a little bit of them feeding into the book. You can see how your interests all culminate in this. But I wanted to just ask you a little bit because it's so fascinating to see or to hear, sorry, that um, there was such a development between your PhD thesis and where the book ended up. Mm. Um, could you tell us perhaps a little bit about your motivations? You know, what drove you to actually profoundly change in many ways um, the, the, the book when it became a book as opposed to a thesis? You know, what what drove you to, to turn it into um, a kind of a new creation, as, as, as you say? Mm. Well, I, I think that it was a question of really finding my, my scholarly voice, um, if I can put it that way. I mean, I think that, that the dissertation was, it had to, it had to demonstrate certain competencies, and I was obviously very caught up in trying to do that. Um, but I think that I didn't quite yet have the confidence to step back at that stage and recognize the, the potential impact of a, sort of a much bolder argument. And so, so I see quite a quite a strong distinction, quite a difference between the dissertation and what this book was eventually able to be. Um, but it, but it, it, it was, you know, there were many years difference between, so I mean, I, I think I graduated in 2008 and it was at least another five or six years before I submitted the final manuscript. So there was a lot of space. To, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate in having um, a postdoc immediately after the dissertation. So, and and my my advisor, David Skolpek, invited me. To, I mean, his his suggestion was that I reread my dissertation and recognize try, try to identify three things: the um, what was most of value about that particular work. Um, what I could do away with, you know, what, what didn't need to be there. Because, of course, the dissertation was trying to um, perform a certain competence as a, as a PhD student. Um, and some of the 
detail was not necessary. Some um, some of the due deference that I that I think I, I felt the need to perform to the scholarly community, which is not inappropriate, but but it but I think that my own voice was was too hidden as a result of performing all of that um, due deference. And then the other question was, what else really should be there? What what's the chapter that I didn't have the chance to write? Um, and and what is most compelling about? So I was I was able in a sense to think about the potential implications of what what was nascent in in the dissertation as a dissertation, and the the liberty that that gave me to think more boldly. Um, about the potential contribution to a conversation that was current in the field was was something that 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 I really valued. I, I, I had the space to think in, and 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 of course partly what that meant for me as someone who's um, whose scholarship. I, I mean, I, I my ideal is, and it, I, I found that it's really been necessary for me to develop as a scholar. To be thinking about social justice um, rather than just performing certain competencies. I mean, I, I feel the need to, if, if my scholarship is to matter, it has to address itself to social justice and the the as an early modernist to these these legacies that certainly in the context of South Africa we we are just painfully aware of the the colonial modernity um, has found its way into our institutions and in a sense the, the, the student movements over the last few years since sort of 2015 really is where it took off and by that stage this work was was really nearing completion but it I, I think that there's a way in which the the impatience with um, with the legacy of colonialism in the context of South Africa so it's not even just apartheid but it's the students were were recognizing and pushing back against the the legacy of coloniality as it manifests in our institutions and in our the curricula that we teach and and so on and so there's been a um a very productive upheaval um that has taken place and, and not only in in South Africa, I mean, I, I'm sure that you and and listeners would be aware of the the student movement that led to. Um, initially, it was it it went by the hashtag Roads Must Fall because, of course, in South in Cape Town University, the campus, there was this big statue of Cecil John Rhodes, this arch capitalist and colonialist, um, who had been the primary benefactor. Um, of the University of Cape Town and, and the fact that, that his statue appeared right in the centre of the campus. Students were really impatient with that. Um, and then it, it, it led to, it, it became a much more widespread um, movement or set of movements uh, with a number of issues being brought in, into um, public debate around fees and around the sort of ongoing inequalities in the South African education system um, and society, the, the economic disparities that are still racialized 25 years after the end of apartheid. So, so it felt that it, this work emerged at a time when um, so much was under scrutiny and 
and it felt it felt it seemed to me that 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 the scholarship has needed to be part of that conversation um that to the extent that our scholarship is far removed from the real world issues that confront us and our students it it um yeah it, it the, the the value is so much more if we as scholars are able to really engage um, issues of injustice today as they as they manifest today and and, and that as early modernists um, there's no need to feel that that we are not in conversation with um, with these kinds of debates that are taking place in the contemporary moment um, and in fact. As, as I think Anya Lumba says, we have early modernists have a great deal to, um, you know, there's their grounds for conversation. I think she puts it that we have a lot to teach um, contemporary concerns. Um, and those concerns have only intensified. I mean, with the Black Lives Matter movement, it feels that these issues have become only more pressing and urgent and current and matters of life and death. And I, I, I hope it doesn't sound... Um, you know, slightly hysterical to say that 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 these matters of of life and death, you know, undoubtedly today, um, as the Black Lives Matter movement have have brought into visibility and made urgent, that that in a sense, this work of looking at what's going on in the 16th century as the new systems of knowledge are trying to emerge and new evidentiary systems, but that, that also end up doing the work of um, making these racialized distinctions part of our intellectual inheritance, that, I, that, that there's, a, there's a link to be drawn, I think, um, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic. But for me, it's, it's, it's absolutely the case that... that what's going on in the early modern period as um, the European systems of knowledge are coming into being and everything is up for grabs in a sense. And this is pre-Bacon. It's, um, it, it, you know, the, the, the work that these explorers are doing and the basis for their, um, for what they are presenting to their societies as systems of knowledge um, they're, they're, in a sense, things are up for grab. They're, they're new systems are needing to evolve, and we can read on the pages of these compilations the the contestations that are taking place um, about how we know um, and and how we know what is true and what is and what is not. And um, and one of the things that is that that has felt so compelling for me in trying to approach the early modern period and and trying to trace the um, the kind of social hierarchy that is that is forming in these texts that are trying to present themselves very conscious self-consciously as um, works of of knowledge that are certainly um, involved implicated in the much more violent systems of colonization. Um, it's it's very clear that one can read these contestations on the page because it's not yet settled. Um, and and I think that that's fascinating. It, it it 
part of what these texts seem to be um, busy with and in, engaged in is creating a platform um, for the curious European reader to to view the rest of the world. Um, there's a kind of an orientation to knowledge that isn't just about knowledge, but it's about how to think about, how to imagine the worlds across the sea. Um, so there's an there's a establishment of a, of a kind of a, a platform from which to imagine the rest of the world that these texts are clearly um, contributing to. And, and even when they are attempting to present the material in, in, as um, dependable in terms of evidence, you know, they, they, when they're at pains to demonstrate that um, the knowledge that is being presented is dependable as opposed to, you know, Mandeville's um, outlandish figures that, that he would claim are based in an eyewitness account. When, when we see these um, compilers and geographers and, and so on basing their what they are presenting as knowledge, basing it in terms of new textual strategies that, that rely on um, graphs and charts and you know indices and tables of contents and and lists as well as narrative and so on the um part of what they are clearly doing is is offering to the european reader a dependable position from which to then survey the world and and so they are deeply implicated in the kinds of hierarchies that that we inherit today that are absolutely based in what we have come to think of as as racial distinction distinctions and of course the 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 field of early modern scholars who are concerned with these issues i mean there's been a tremendous amount of work um very compelling convincing work in thinking about the kinds of language that was used in the period to talk about racial distinction, whether it was someone like Jean Farrick who's talked about blood, or Margaret Hendricks talking about lineage, um, and and so on. There, there's more to say about the way that what we identify today as racial distinction operates at this time, um, and so it it, it has been. I've really valued the opportunity to contribute to that conversation and have found it fascinating to to look at texts askance as it were to try and read them inside uh, uh, you know to read their sentences but also to read their to read them as material objects and to read their their representational strategies the new technologies that are emerging in the period um as the early modern scholars are, are trying to establish a more dependable foundation um, from which to make sense of this newly expanded world and the, the, the chaos, the excitement that that leads to, but also the, the uncertainty about their intellectual inheritance, um, 
you know, when they begin to realize that Aristotle's knowledge was very limited and, and that what one can know from inside the ivy tower of a, of a university is, is inevitably limited and that, in fact, a sailor might know more because um, he has a more dependable basis for that knowledge. It's, um, so it, it feels like the, the early modern period is a very exciting period to be exploring and studying um, but it but sometimes the discipline I think and it's it's uh, strictures the the need to be historically careful which of course is entirely appropriate but it can have the the effect of um, silencing some of the these concerns around social justice um, as though they are misplaced. And in fact, they're not misplaced at all, um, I, I would argue. And so my book is an attempt to, to bring those concerns around social justice and the way that they manifest in language and in texts and in the discourses that we use then. Um, it, it feels like the, this book is an attempt to bring those two things together, <clears throat> the concern of the scholar as well as the concern of the the citizen who is alarmed at ongoing injustice. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And it certainly makes such a powerful intervention in that field. I mean, um, you, you know, you're not only making a, uh, this intervention into early modern studies, but the, that sense of social justice and the connections between social justice and history are really very, very profound. Um, and it's something that um, we keep coming back to, I think, on the Intellectual um, History podcast, um, because it really does feel like a driving theme in so much of the newer kind of intellectual histories that are being written. And it, it's very refreshing um, to academics, to um, to readers who are who are very much personally concerned with those um, those topics. Um, so before we dive into the chapters, um, I was wondering if you could just give us an overview of um, the nine chapters because it's it's a very it's a very rich book. There is a great deal um, going on within it, and you cover very very different. Um, but of course, very connected topics. So could you just outline for listeners the the general structure of the book and, and how it progresses? Sure, thank you. Um, so it, it, it seemed that, that I mean, I've, I felt the need in, in the introduction to set out, um, to make a case for, for the argument um, and for the fact that, that the work that I'd, that I had done, the research seemed to me to suggest that in this period, um, just following the, you know, so-called discoveries of, of the new world, there was a, a concern with with human difference and how to represent it. Um, that there was a sense of marvel, um, that you know, the trope of wonder, but but also a need to be able to 
give more sort of formal representation to also the whole world, this this need to present the world as as coherent in the face of the you know the chaos of the um, all this newness and um, and the argument that that felt important to make was that um, the mechanisms for for giving representational form to um, that concern with human difference um, can be read on the pages of these texts um, and you know not only in in the words themselves but but also in the images that that were used um, and and so in a sense the the book the the chapters um, each in, in each of the chapters I try to um, give some attention to different representational strategies because of course the book is very much about representational forms that were and, and strategies that were used and, and um, were evolving so in each of the chapters there there is um, a particular kind of focus in the chapter that deals with the images, which I've called "Picturing New Worlds," um, I look at the way that these, that a number of key woodcut images, that some of the, the first woodcut images that were used to give um, some imaginative shape to these new worlds, the, the way in which they reappear in in different texts. Um, so the 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 fact that and, and part of what I was concerned to show in 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 that particular chapter was the way in which images do more than just illustrate they also um, I mean they they fill in the blanks but they they also direct the reader um, and enable a certain kind of imaginative investment in ideas about these different places and part of one of the the key things that I was key aspects of that argument that repeats itself in different moments in the book is that these texts were creating equivalences across very different parts of the world so um the and, and one can see this very clearly in in the reproduction of a woodcut image that is used to supposedly illustrate a section about Africa you know it reappears in a section about um, about India and then again in the so-called new world so so the the fact so I was able to make an argument about how these parts of the world are racialized and rendered in some strange way equivalent and and also you know the alterity of these other parts of the world is it's signaled very clearly visually that there's an argument being made in the form of these woodcut images um, and in the use of images in some of these texts um, so so I suppose I'm thinking about the use of images as as something that is not so much just illustrative but is also doing important um knowledge building work um, and doing the work of argument in a way that there's a there's a certain rhetorical weight to 
um, the use of images. Um, and in the next chapter, I, I talk about the way that maps worked in the period. Similarly, to create argument about the shape of the world um, and to place the European in relation to these quote-unquote other parts of the world. Um, I was also interested in the rhetorical force of, of the number and some of these um, strategies for knowledge creation that are associated, that, that, that appear to be dispassionate um, and based in um, geometry and so on. And in, in being able to read the way that, that um, particularly Walter Miller in his um, introduction to cosmography, um, the fact that he has to, or chooses to publish a little introduction, a, a, a little volume to accompany his map to sort of school the reader in how to read the map suggests that that these things are not as um, transparent and self-evident as they may seem if one if one takes these representational technologies at face value. Um, that for Valtzi Miller, he feels it necessary to school his reader in being able to read correctly and of course there's a there's a there's there's a great deal of ideological work that is taking place in his explanation about how to work with numbers and geometry and with these maps and what what's also fascinating to me is the is the the way in which these texts are framed and the position that they offer the reader the, the sort of identificatory um, possibilities that the European reader is able to um, set up for themselves, and the, so the the letters to the reader and the dedications and so on. The these um, quite particular textual elements that help to provide a way in for a reader, and of, of course, so many of these texts are are, are very invested. Um, with the endeavor to show that they are scholarly in some way, that they can be depended upon. Um, but, but just the fact that they have to offer these signals of their own um, dependability and the basis upon which they claim dependability is really fascinating. For, and one, one can read um, these strategies askance in a way to recognize where the anxieties lie um, and, and where the ideological work is taking place. Um, another chapter looks at instructions to sailors to um, take notes, to make recordings, to, and, and, and what to notice and how to notice and how to um, create journals of information that can then feed the knowledge practices um, of the day. It, the, it, one of the chapters looks at a, a different technology for gathering quote-unquote knowledge, which is the curiosity cabinet. Um, 
And one of the texts that I look at is the the textual version of that, the lists, I mean, literally lists, it's not, it's not in narrative form, but um, of the Tredescents, which, and their collection, you know, it formed the basis of the Ashmolean collection in Oxford. So it, 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 it felt like there was an argument there to be made about the, um, the foundation, one of these foundational texts, one of these foundational collections upon which um, later systems of knowledge are are dependent it's full of the language of wonder and rarity and and what I was able to do in that chapter is to look at the the, this language of the marvelous um that has found its way into natural history um, and the distinction between natural history and natural philosophy and as a, a as a basis for um, collecting something that can be called knowledge um, that is is clearly so implicated in positioning the people peoples of the world nations in the south as as being other and as being in some way you know there's this purient fascination for for what is different, um, that that the work of collection seems to to validate, and you know it seems to to present itself in the period as as you know what we will come to think of as scientific, and yet it's so infused um, with something that is much more pejorative. But unless one reads these texts carefully, analytically. And of course, askance, one might not see the way in which that ideological work is is taking place on the page. Um, one of the the things that that I was really concerned to show in this work, and it emerges in the later chapters, is the work of editing. So, I'm obviously I'm, I'm the book is really uh, focusing on compilations of what gets presented as as knowledge but of course these component parts and the way that they are stitched together into something that could seem compendious um complete no, of course compendious doesn't mean complete it means um it, it it allows for the possibility that there is incompletion and that that it's the, the there's a kind of a, a sampling involved but a sampling of the whole world that the, the uh, in the 16th century, they were so caught up in the idea of the whole, um, and 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 so what's what's of interest to me is 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 how they make decisions about or what the effect is of of the particular choices of what to include and what not to include, um, and I'm interested in the way that that emerges also as a textual matter. So and the the shifts that take place. Um, when disparate parts are put together, stitched together, and made "quote unquote" whole, you know the role of the editor in identifying what the meanings of these texts are really should be understood to be. Um, and it, I had a lot of fun actually in tracing um, 
the, the shifts that take place when a particular text appears in different forms. Um, I mean, one very clear example of that, one very um, stark example is Thomas Harriet's Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia, which when it first you know, um, is, is published, when it first sees the light of day in 1588, it's a, it's a modest text. It's, it's a, it appears as a quarto, um, little, I mean, essentially a pamphlet. And it's, it's clearly, it, it's demonstrably um, a matter of argument. It, it's, its reason for being is to try and encourage investment in, the, um, in, in Walter Raleigh's return journey to Roanoke, to the colony that was um, such a disaster. And so the fact that it is, um, that the narrative is attempting to persuade readers is, is very evident. Um, and part of, what, part of the strategy of, of the narrative is to demonstrate that this is an, inhabit, an inhabited land and an inhabitable land, that it is fertile um, and that the indigenous people are welcoming and so on. And yet in, in having to, to offer that evidence of the encounter, the, the narrative has to reckon with the disastrous consequences for the indigenous people of the colonial project, for the deaths, the invisible bullets, as Stephen Greenback put it. Um, and, and there's a tremendous amount of anxiety that one can actually read into that narrative. But when it appears just a couple of years later as part of Debris' beautiful, expensive folio version, which is retitled America, and it's a much bolder exercise um, as a bookmaking exercise. It's it's a um, it, it's a kind of a celebration of the new world, um, and and the, what that text is, the work that it is doing rhetorically is very very different. Um, and even though it includes the the narrative, Thomas Harriet's narrative about. Um, about the encounter, the, the, the visual impact of these exquisite engravings um, and the tables of content that purport to offer um, a, you know, a particular account of what is, as opposed to the, the tension that results from the encounter, that, that it, it presents the new world in a very, very different way. And suddenly the impact of the colonial encounter, the, the, the violence of what can only be thought of as, as conquest, um, is not really visible anymore. And the, the kinds of equivalences that are set up between the indigenous peoples of Virginia and the British Picts in time long past, you know, the, it, it sets up a way of thinking about possible connections but but also this teleological um relation that that suggests that europe is that much more advanced and that it's manifest destiny to um to settle in america and allow for some kind of upliftment i mean all of that ideological work that is that is so dubious of course is 
um, performed in the textual in textual form itself. One can one can read it on the page, um, which I found really fascinating. So so colonial violence recedes from view in this very different textual version of of the narrative, um, and I the the editorial interventions in the various stages of the production of Leo Africanus's text about um, his description of Africa um, similarly um, creates profound differences ideologically in um, the way in which the so-called Moor is is presented so and and this is in the in the final chapter, which is a consideration of early modern geography and the positioning of Africa, and has the Leo Africana's initial text. I mean, the the in rudimentary Italian, which then gets translated into a different form in Latin, and then gets taken up by John Pori and published and circulated widely in sixteen hundred um, in England using John Pori's language to describe Islamic peoples as, you know, the Mohammedans and, and so on, and, and this, this word Moor, which the Afrikaners himself didn't ever use. Um, and it's it's John Pori's framing of that narrative with his prefatory material and also the translation itself that turns Leo Afrikaners into a very different kind of figure from the original versions of, of this text. And so the, the work of the editor and of the compiler um, in producing these texts and their, their meanings is, is profound um, for a consideration of, um, of what I must call colonial violence. And, and I, th- I think that there's a tremendous amount that, that scholars are able to do in if we if we don't take these texts at face value, if we think more carefully about how they set up their um, their basis for what they would have us receive as knowledge, um, if if we if we look a little bit if 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 we deploy a degree of skepticism and a lot of of careful analytical work. It's possible to to track how the rhetorical work of the, of um, trying to describe this supposedly whole world in the 16th century, how that work takes place on the page and the position that it allows to the European who is able to think of themselves. And, and, and so a key part of what I was also doing then was thinking about the distinction that gets set up between the people of the North and the people of the South. Um, because, because all of these texts in different ways um, buy into that, um, into that distinction. That, and it's a distinction that doesn't really, um, you know, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny if one takes it literally as, I mean, Ethiopia is considered to be in the south, where you know it's above the equator, so that the and and obviously, I, but, you know, by the time I'd um, presented all of these different examples and um, looked at 
the various textual forms in which I see this taking place. By the time I got to the end of the, the work, and I really wanted to make this argument very clearly about the way in which the South emerges as one way to think about a racialized other, um, you know, I had to acknowledge that that even then, it didn't necessarily map onto a cartographic grid, literally. But my interest isn't so much in the literal cartographic grid, and I don't think theirs was either, um, the early modernists, that is, who invoke this language. Um, I think it becomes one way to think about human difference, um, the, the distinction between the what Richard Blome calls the you know, victorious robust peoples of the north um, and the what he, he calls the melancholy people of the south. I mean, these kinds of distinctions, which are so spurious, of course, but, it, but they gain traction, I think. And I, I, I think we inherit them um, even today. I was wondering if we could just stay with these early modern compilations of travel narratives for a moment. Um, and, you know, you've set out how they are basically creating these equivalences across um, the global south between these different regions. And you give, yes, those examples of, of how these woodcuts and how things are, are reincarnated um, and repurposed um, to talk about different areas and different groups. Could you just, for listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with um, either the early modern period or these types of, of sources, you know, could you describe the forms that these compilations were taking in, in the period and 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 how and why they were using this geographical and cartographical language to really conceptualize human difference across the globe? Sure. So so there there was obviously there, these texts that they were producing were often large format, um, these large folio um, encyclopedic. There was a, a great deal of interest in trying to um, map out the whole world so um, and to deal with the, the, the gaps in knowledge that had been inherited. So, for example, Sebastian Munster's large um, uh, his compilation was in the middle of the century I think initially um, 1544 I think was when it was first appeared um, and uh, in many languages German and Latin and and so on there's a French version too there's not a single English version but the, the excerpts appear in, Engli- in English um, in the sort of second half of, of the century. But these these large format um, encyclopedic geographies are attempting to um, fill in the gaps of what was not known. So with the new discoveries, it, clearly the, there was a, an appetite for, um, for something that was more dependable, something that could deal with the fact that, and, and of course, this—it's not just the say. It's not—it's not to say that there was not a great deal of um, reverence for early geographers like Ptolemy, and in fact, Sebastian Munster mimics Ptolemy's. I mean, reproduces 
Ptolemy's format that he just adds a fourth part of the world um, because the Americas um, were unknown to Ptolemy. Um, But but in order to to, uh, present this quote-unquote new knowledge, they depend on accounts of explorers. Um, And so what the, the kinds of texts that find their way into these compilations are often quite partisan and quite um, um, peculiar, I, I would almost say. So, so the, and whereas in the middle part of the century, um, the, the work of someone like Sebastian Munster is, is more located within an impulse that reads as being about knowledge, about, you know, geography to follow in the footsteps of Ptolemy but to extend to areas that Ptolemy didn't know about. Um, By the end of the century when Richard Hacklett is putting together his um, principal navigations and voyages of the English nation, um, that work of collecting accounts becomes much more closely tied tied to the, the work of this sort of an emergent nationalist discourse, the idea of of England as a nation, um, even more so than as a as a commonwealth. But um, and and so the the work of these compi- uh, certainly a, a compiler like like Richard Hackler, who who is publishing right at the end of the sixteenth century these multi volume tomes that try to gather together. Um, as many accounts as possible. But because they are so disparate, these these accounts, the compiler's role, the compiler's voice, um, becomes quite key in, in creating a frame and creating a way in for the reader to understand and creating lists and setting up the um, bona fides of the the endeavor and 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 associating it with knowledge as opposed to just the um, self-serving works of of merchant adventurers, so to speak. Um, but of course, there's a very close link between the work of the merchant adventurers, you know, the the, the commercial interests, um, and the work of um, of what will appear as knowledge, um, so to speak. So these these compilations, they're, they're very weighty tomes. Um, they involve disparate texts, very different different voices, um, and that in order to make them somehow coherent, the work of the compiler ends up being all important. Um, the, and so that prefatory material is is really fascinating to look at carefully, the, because it kind of sets up the orientation. Um, it sets up the and, and and who is being, you know, to whom is the dedication addressed? For example, is key um, to giving us a sense of how the compiler envisages the work um, and its potential impact. It, you know, and and it's it's rhetorical. Um, impact. I'm not sure. Does that answer your question? 
Absolutely. No, it's just because, you know, these these compilations are, are so rich and they're so diverse. They're such a complicated, I mean, as you've made very clear, um, type of source that I, I wonder if perhaps, you know, not if people are not perhaps so familiar with them, um, it's hard to perhaps imagine the potential that they offer in all of these these layers which overlap um, within them. And of course, people have spoken of them as, I mean, the Michel Foucault dismisses them as nothing but the same thing. And he talks about the 16th century compilations as nothing but a thing of sand, I think he said. And that they, they, um, he, I mean, it's part of his, uh, it, it feels dismissive and it feels not very careful because in fact, if one takes the time of course, it takes a lot of time and a lot of um, careful reading to recognize the the differences within them that have to be adjudicated. And, and in that process, we get to see what some of the anxieties are, what some of the uncertainties are, um, and the, the distinction in um, the, the distinctive discourses in a way that have to get managed. So although I, I in one sense, I can appreciate what what it is that Foucault is, is trying to suggest, that knowledge-making in the period is about accumulation. That's his point. Um, he's not entirely correct because, as early modernists would be, many would be able to point out to him if that were possible, that there's a lot going on and there's a lot that is, precisely because it is so, these, these compilations are so voluminous, they they have to be quite um, they have to be stitched together somehow, and it doesn't always hold. Um, it doesn't always feel coherent, and that's what's fascinating for scholars. And I think it also speaks somewhat, you know, this dismissiveness of these types of sources to the the biases and and the sense of hierarchies that we have within, um, especially intellectual history. The idea that a compilation is something that's a kind of as a, as a compilation, you know, perhaps doesn't have as much, you know, credence and importance in the period as perhaps, say, treatises and things like this. So right. I think it's it's a kind of salient reminder, perhaps, of, of the diversity of sources and the importance of these lesser, quote unquote, yeah. um, sources um, and, and kind of textual products um, in how we rethink intellectual history. Um at least for, for, that's how I how I read it, uh, especially in your book. I think, you know, what you do is is a really um, very global intellectual history. You're using a huge diversity of both visual and textual sources in a myriad of different ways. You know, you clearly borrow approaches from uh, from book history, history of cartography, what feels like social anthropology and things like this. And yeah. it's that layered approach which really makes this such a rich um, and and very progressive in terms of um, the arguments that you're you're making. And. I just wanted. I just. I've just seen our, our time, and we're we're clearly running out. But um, before I let you go, I was wondering something that really struck me reading the book is, is this this term, the global south, um, and especially its usage today. Um, you know, it's in your title. It's something that that runs throughout the book, and I was just wondering if you could maybe reflect a little bit on the ways in which, you know, this term as, as we, we have in contemporary usage, it in many ways embodies so many of the same issues that you've uncovered regarding how geographical language was being used in the early modern period as a means of communicating human difference and, you know, very much human hierarchy. You know, to what extent do you really see this language as, as continuing to shape our perceptions of the world and, and also of, of knowledge making? 
Hmm. I mean, I do think so. The, the what complicates it is the fact that so much is dependent today on economic disparities and the kind of precariousness of so many people's lives in the global south continues, but it also manifests in some of the um, economically powerful um, cities in the global north. Um, and so it's it's certainly complicated and not as um, clear-cut as the geographical language would seem to suggest. Um, but those who've really brought it to prominence, um, people like Arif Dierlik, who wrote about the way in which the global south sort of took over the language of you know first world third world um with projects in the united nations um and i think there about um 10 years ago there was a um a program about forging a global south and and the idea was to try to build economic independence um, and sustainability, you know, to use this, um, the kind of development speak that Derelict was so critical of. Um, but in tracing how the term came to prominence more recently in the, over the last couple of decades, Derelict finds tremendous amount that is problematic in the term, but also um, when, I mean, his his argument is that when one think about the global south as um, a set of connections that allow, that, that allow us to see, that bring to visibility the kind of precariousness that so many um, parts of the world in the global south continue to experience, um, it, it can be very useful. And the Jean and John Komarov, who in their um, influential work from uh, 2012, they speak about theory from the global south and the, the sort of lessons to be learned from, you know, the, this language is also difficult. I mean, and I'm, I'm conscious as I, as I reach, find myself reaching for a term like marginalized, a sort of marginalized it's it's really about disempowerment in a global system that um, that the the Comoros argument that the, the global south allows one a, a particular view on colonial modernity that uh, makes us much more aware of the devastating impact of globalization and that there are lessons to be learned there, there's in fact there's a there's, there's a theoretical sophistication that um, the global north um, would do well to open themselves to, that, that if the theory from the south can, can allow us to see um, an entirely different perspective on what gets presented as, quote-unquote, progress and so on, without recognising the devastating impact of the, the kinds of inequalities and... Um, you know the the ongoing poverty of of communities and and just the the that so many so many of the knowledge practices even today position people um, 
in these racialized fashions and are dismissive. Um, so this language of the global south that these kinds of theorists are, and Walter Mignolo is is a is another key figure. Um, who these cultural theorists who are making a very strong case for for the global south as a matter of perspective, as a as a as a paradigm that can revalue um, and reposition the these truisms that have been inherited from theory as it's been practiced in, in, in the global north, which continues to dominate and it becomes very difficult to see different perspectives. So this, this idea of being able to um, approach the world from, you know, a, a, approach a phenomenon from the lateral view is, is one, one way of, of thinking about the value of, of a southerly perspective, if one can call it that. Um, and another key figure is Raywin Cohn, from who's been writing in Australia, um, her work on Southern theory, which which takes seriously um, a, a, a different perspective. Um, the other thing that that has felt of value to me, particularly in the new work, is the kinds of affinities that can. Be created the the kind of where where histories are not exactly equivalent or shared precisely in there. There's there's a, a perspective that that can get recognised across if, if one sort of by, the, the problem with um, post colonialism as a as a model as a theory is that of course it always goes via the the colonialist. Whereas the possibility of forging connections across the global south, um, recognizing um, sort of similar experiences of precarity that that are mirrored in contexts like um, Brazil and Mauritius and South Asia, um, certainly Africa, and so on. Um, it, it allows the conversation to shift somewhat when theory isn't just inherited from the North and applied to these contexts, but when these contexts are able to articulate for themselves um, in terms that are potentially much more challenging to, to colonial modernity. So, so in my work, I found it, the idea of the global South to be tremendously valuable, but as long as it's treated as a matter of perspective and um, as a as a set of ideas and as a possibility for um, connection and affinity and solidarity, as opposed to anything more literal and fixed, because then it becomes very difficult to see the kind of pockets of precariousness that exist in the north, or alternatively the um, the the ways in which parts of what would register as the South continue to be exploitative and so on. And the book, I think, makes an excellent case for how you can use these um, terms 
very cautiously, but also very productively. And, and I'm thinking not just here about your usage of global south, but, you know, you also weigh quite heavily into the debate regarding the applicability of talking about the term and concept of race in the early modern period, which, you know, unfortunately, right. so many people, so many historians are still arguing is an anachronous um, concept. But I think you, especially in, in the, your kind of afterward and in, in the book, you make such a such a such a strong but also very reasoned argument for for why we can use these terms um, still uh, in ways which actually reveal so much more about the period and and the topics that we're we're studying. So um, and I think, I think that's, so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I think I, you know people who I who are perhaps less familiar with um, this debate, especially with regarding race in the early modern period, I really would you know encourage you to go and and pick up the book um, and to to look at the afterword because I think. You know, you you not only map out so much of the um, existing debate and, and the literature, or is it, it works very well as a primer, you know, for those who are new to the subject. But I think you make a very strong case um, uh, for for why we need to 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 really be pushing forward on on this um, trajectory and really thinking about it in a much more nuanced way. Um, Sandra, I I realize we've taken up so much of your time today, but before I let you go, could you just give us a, a quick glimpse um, into what you're currently working on? Oh, with pleasure. Thank you. Well, I, in the next six months, I hope to finish the third book, which is the one that relates to my memory work, uh, the work on cultural memory in contemporary South African archive and museum curatorial practice and um, personal narrative, prison narratives, the truth and reconciliation and so on. And that that is called An Intimate Archive, Personal Memory and Public Commemoration in the Aftermath of Apartheid. Um, and I, because I do so much teaching and supervising in that field, and it's it's something that matters to me a lot too, um, I feel the need to complete that. But I've got a couple of other things on the go in relation to early modern studies. Um, I published something about the one of the interests that I have is the way in which this uh, these early modern um, knowledge practices and the, the, the textual form that they took um, allowed early moderns, uh, the early moderns to care about the world or not. I mean, that, that idea that Bruno Latour speaks of um, about whether or not um, a discourse leads to or, or concerns itself with matters of concern or matters of fact and and I think sometimes the way in which the globe is positioned um, and what what the viewer is able to see of and imagine of a singular world um, makes a difference to whether or not um, they're going to be invited to care so I, I, I um, published something of that in a, in a book called Pre-Modern Ecologies, a, a collection, and Steve Menz has invited me to contribute a chapter to his proposed collection on what he calls watery thinking. Um, so I'm going to do something similar, but in relation to the ocean and, and what, you know, Steve Menz has done so much work on what he calls the blue humanities. Um, and I, I think that there's something to explore there about the relation to the ocean, particularly given, I mean, from where I'm located, where, you know, in Cape Town, where we've just come through this this water crisis that hit the world's headlines a couple of years ago. Um, so in a 
context of scarcity um, and ecological crisis, I, I think that the early moderns have something to teach us. So I'm going to be exploring that in the next little while. Oh, well, they all sound like fascinating ventures, and I, I hope we might have you back on the podcast to talk about them in the near future. Thank you the so much. The book is The Early Modern Global South in Print, Textual Form, and the Production of Human Difference as Knowledge. And the author is the wonderful Sandra Young. Thank you so much for being on the show oh, today. It's been a treat and an honour. Thank you so much. <laughs>